0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me as always is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact-futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on this podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up an interview with uh, Mo Jane, Dr. Mo Jane, that really exceeded expectations. I went into it expecting that it was going to be a fascinating conversation, and it was far more hopeful and uplifting than than I can recall an interview having been in some time. Were, were there
1: any major lessons? Yeah, brilliant, very articulate. And I, I, loved, I loved your questions about Elizabeth Holmes because <laughs> this is the company that she wished she could have created. This is what she wanted to do,
0: right? He's yeah. Like, well, we can test for all this stuff and we can test for like twelve thousand markers. And I'm like, Well, that sounds familiar. Can you tell me how that's different from uh <laughs> for, from um, uh Miss Holmes's comment? Well, the difference is that he says he's not going to jail. So that's... Yeah, well, and apparently his results are real. So that that's also <laughs> where well, I'm not a venture capitalist, but I'm told it matters that the technology works um yeah so so this was it was a fascinating conversation uh dr jane has just a stellar track record and pedigree and he's put together this company that is really advancing the state of the art in measuring biomarkers so they're able to look at uh thousands of different kinds of what he calls small molecules in the blood which gives you a hint as to the environment that you're in and the food that you're eating and whether you smoke or not and what kind of exercise you're doing and the diseases that uh you're you're susceptible to it, it really gives us a view into this entire new dimension of predictive health analytics, which is just fascinating. Um, and and he, he does a really good job of explaining how it works and what it is and why it matters. And it's, it seems to me like it matters a lot.
1: Yeah, and it's the huge volumes of data that he's collecting and generating uh, from this analysis is just, uh, it's gonna be staggering. And so he has to use some automated systems, uh, the robots, uh, I asked him how many robots he employs, and yes, a lot. So uh, that go through all this data, and that's um, that's that's kind of the heart of the matter, I think. But just being able to sift through this uh, unbelievable amount of data and make some determination as to what makes sense, uh, I I think he's on track to be one of those people considered for a Nobel Prize in the near future if not the very near future. So we'll see. Well, uh, without further ado, this is our episode 139, the interview with
0: future Nobel Prize winner and possible second-time guest on the Futurity Podcast, Dr. Moeit Jane. Tonight, we're joined by Dr. Mohit Jane. Dr. Jane is a physician scientist with more than 20 years of expertise in physiology, biomedicine, engineering, computational biology, and mass spectrometry based metabolomics. Prior to founding Sapient, he formed and was director of Jane Laboratory at the University of California, San Diego. There, he led a multidisciplinary research team to develop next generation systems to probe the non genetic landscape of disease, supported by over $30 million in federal, foundation, and industry funding. Dr. Jane founded Sapiens in 2021 as a spin-out of Jane Laboratory to expand upon the mission of accelerating human discovery and drug development through the nexus of high-throughput analytic mass spectrometry, computational biology, and population-level biomarker profiling. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, FuturatiPodcast.com. Oh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really excited to be here today, Trent, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you are working on today. Sure, sure. I have a somewhat convoluted and
2: and winding background where I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. So uh, I I started um, as an MD, PhD, uh, clinically trained in adult medicine and cardiology, uh, trained through the Boston programs. My PhD work is in molecular physiology. Uh, post-clinical training, I did my postdoctoral work at the Broad Institute at, at Harvard and MIT uh, in mass spectrometry and large data a- analytics. Subsequently uh, became a professor uh, and, and moved out to California for for warmer pastures about a decade ago, where I became a professor in the University of California system. Uh, and our laboratory uh, was working on a technology called mass spectrometry, uh, which are these really fascinating devices that allow us to take very complex specimens. Uh, and break them up into components and measure the abundance of the components. And we we're particularly interested in in taking these technologies and and leverage uh, them for uh, understanding human biology and human health and disease.
0: You can tell me a little bit more about how that process works. How does mass spectrometry can contribute to that? So you said you you take something complex, you break it down into parts, and then specifically you reference the fact that you're able to figure out how much of each thing there is it's not obvious to me that that would shed a lot of light, uh, sure. into, I mean, give, given how complex the systems are and how they're all inter- interrelated. So just epistemologically, how does that work? Like, what are you learning? Yeah. yeah so fa- great question, Trent. So a, the way we think about this is when you go to the doctor's
2: office, and you'll see where I'm going here in a moment, but when you go to the doctor's office every year for your annual physical, they draw two tubes of blood. And then the two tubes of blood, they measure about a dozen different things. Now, Those dozen things are not necessarily the most important things. It's just the dozen things or so that we discovered many years ago and we decided to measure that tell us about how your body's working, how your kidney's working, how your liver's working, how your heart is working, how your cholesterol is being managed, how your metabolic state is, et cetera. And those are all encompassed in about 12 things. Now, there's over 10,000 things floating around in your blood. And again, we're measuring only 12 of them. And you could imagine if we're able to capture the remaining 9,000 plus molecules that are floating around your blood, there's a tremendous more we can tell about how your body's functioning, how your organs are functioning, everything around the world in which you interact, everything you eat, drink, smell, smoke, how the microbes in your gut are functioning, all of that information can be encompassed in those 9,000 other biological markers. Now, what a mass spectrometer does is it takes a complex specimen, again, like blood, that's comprised of thousands of these markers, It simplifies that sample using something called chromatography, which allows us to separate these chemicals based upon their chemical classes and their chemical characteristics. And then we inject it into the mass spectrometer itself. Now, a mass spectrometer is a very precise bioanalytical tool that allows us to measure the chemical properties of each of these molecules, as well as the relative abundance, how much of each of these markers we have. Now, you can imagine on one individual if we're measuring your blood or our Thomas's blood, it may tell us very little in isolation. But if we can take a mass spectrometer and make it go 500 to 1,000 times faster, and we can study tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of individuals, now we can begin to identify from all these markers in your blood which one tells us about your brain health, which one tells us about your heart, your lungs, your liver, which one reads out this particular diet, which marker here is going to tell us What's going to happen to you over many, many years? What diseases are you going to develop? What drug are you going to respond to? You can think of this as a holistic view. These thousands of markers in blood are a holistic view of Trent and the world in which he lives. And the limitation is how do we finally measure these?
0: So can you tell us a little bit about... Oh, go ahead, Thomas. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. Do you see, I mean, ratcheting this forward, do you see this as eventually getting so that we're we're monitoring this real time on people?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, real time's an interesting question, right? It's not the case that for all molecules, they have to be measured on a minute by minute basis. And and certainly CGM and there's certain molecules for which having very dense measurements are very powerful. Uh, These molecules tend to be fairly stable in blood. And we would argue that measuring these annually could provide a tremendous amount of information regarding, again, your health state, your disease states, as well as what your risks of developing future diseases are and how you may respond to particular therapeutics.
0: Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Could you give us an indication of how much better your technology is than the other competitors available on the market? Like, like are we talking about a two x speed up? Or are we talking about a five hundred x speed up?
2: Yeah, exactly. So, when when I started my faculty job in the University of California system, uh, what we did was a, a basic back of the envelope calculation. Yeah. We said we'd have to be able to take this instrument and make it go at least two orders of magnitude, so over 100x faster for us to be able to make discoveries in large enough populations that they were robust discoveries and could actually clinically implement it. And so that's what we began doing through a number of hardware improvements. I'm happy to talk to the technical details of how we do this, uh, as well as a number of software improvements. And collectively now, this is about 500 times faster than the next fastest systems. Now, what that means, Trent, is that from any biological specimen, whether it be blood, urine, tears, a tissue sample, et cetera, we can measure somewhere in the order of about 15,000 of these markers in a biological sample. And to give you an idea of how fast we do that, it's now under one minute per sample. So we can do this in about 53 seconds uh, sample to sample time. Uh, And from that, again, we're measuring 15,000 of these markers, and you can compare that to the 12 or so markers that the doctor measures every year annually at part of your physical.
0: So so is your technology, it's the speed up. It's not that you're measuring more stuff, like the 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 different biomarkers you're looking for is relatively set. You're just doing it much, much more quickly. And that open up, opens up a frontier of new possibilities for applications. Is, is that correct?
2: Well, it, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It, it certainly is faster. But not only is it faster, but also the number of molecules we're measuring is about 10x greater than is typically done. Uh, and we could talk about why that is the way we do chromatographic separation allows us to capture many more molecules and measure those than would be typical uh and, and that's about again 10x better but the the speed is is really what allows us to enable discovery at, at very large
0: scale so so it's it's much better along almost every dimension
2: uh certainly yeah <laughs> and, and this is why now we we can finally make some some real discoveries
0: and it sounds like there's a data science problem lurking back there and and i apologize i'm a machine learning engineer so the first thing i think is well what regressions would i run on this i mean it it, it sounds like with this increased breadth of biomarkers you're looking at and given the fact that you're able to measure it progressively over time in a population that's much larger than before because of the technological advances you've made there could be really interesting long-term patterns and trends to look for is is that kind of where you have set your sights and if so have you accomplished anything in that direction yet
2: yeah, absolutely. So, so there's two actual uh, data science or, or machine learning issues here. The, the first is a simple extraction issue. The way the mass spectrometry files work out is it spits out almost an image file that has millions of pixels on it that essentially me- uh, represents the measurements. So the first machine learning issue is how do you actually extract data at scale? So current commercial software allows you to do this on 100 files to somewhere on the order of about 1,000 or files or so. Once you get above 1,000 files, uh, you can you can imagine current software is no longer capable of doing it. So the first machine learning software issue is how do we build this so we can do this 10,000 to 100,000 files at a time? That's the first. As a component of that, is how we begin to align files. And the same way we align facial recognition, you have to be able to align these very complex images and so we can study the same molecule in one sample versus that same one out of 10,000 molecules in another sample. That's also a machine learning landmark-based uh, sort of image processing issue. The second uh, sort of computational uh, hurdle is exactly as you mentioned, Trent. And measuring these thousands of things and thousands of people uh, now becomes a, a real biological insight issue in which how do you look for patterns, whether they be singular molecules or patterns of many, many molecules that read out ideal health and disease states? And as you can imagine, that's a that's a complete machine learning AI based issue.
1: So there's there's a lot of people that look from the outside into the healthcare industry. Um, they're making claims that healthcare hasn't cured anything um, in many years. Um, and so a lot of people would. The first thing they would ask is, "Well, what have you cured?" Yeah, and um, not understanding the the massive value that is speeding up the process would uh, would would add to the potential for doing things. Uh, how would you answer that question? Um, yeah. What have you cured, and what do you hope to cure in the, in the near future?
2: Absolutely. Well, I think, first of all, it's a very, very fair question. And and frankly, this is how I got into this space. As I mentioned, I was trained as a clinical cardiologist, and I loved taking care of patients. It was my true passion in life. Um, And I can tell you what made me switch was having to have a very frequent conversation with patients when they would ask, why did this happen to me? Why did I get this disease? And why did the person next to me not get this disease? Uh, and and that was a really tough conversation, and especially when you're practicing in the Boston environment, you get some really smart people. And as you begin starting to explain why someone gets disease and someone else, it, they can sense that there's huge gaps in our ability to understand disease the, the processes. They Perfect. they smell BS a mile away, uh, and 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 that's one component of it. And the second component of it is when we would administer drugs to individuals. And It's really, it's shocking to me still to this day when I explain this to folks, but even for the best drugs we have out there, the most targeted chemotherapeutic agents, they only work in a fraction of people that receive the drug. It's still a coin flip at best, at best. Now, if you're talking about certain cardiovascular drugs to really prevent things like heart attacks, you're talking way, way worse than a corn flip. And, and, and this is really sort of startling to me. If you look on a whole population yeah. basis, you can show that the drug as a whole is beneficial if you test it in 10,000 people. But on an individual by individual basis, you still don't know when you get that drug, whether it's a cardiovascular drug, a brain drug, a lung drug, or a chemotherapeutic agent, if it's going to work in you. And that to me is just absolutely astounding. And so there's two components to this. Our ability to understand mechanisms of disease and diagnosis at an early time point is essential for curing. And then two, being able to better align a specific therapeutic with an individual is fundamental. And and that's the basis of personalized medicine. And so Mm -hmm. this is not a new idea. You've heard this for for many, many decades. Uh, The challenge has always been, how do we actually go about executing on this vision? Uh, And much of the efforts over the last uh, 20 years or so has been based upon genomics. And happy to talk through genomics, my views on this, uh, what genomics has done and what it hasn't done. Uh, And I fundamentally believe these blood-based biomarkers are are going to be the first major way in which we can advance this idea of, of diagnosing disease early and then ultimately finding the most effective therapeutic per individual, which essentially is required for curing. Now, you asked a fair question, Tom. So what the heck have you done so far? How do we know this works at all? And I can tell you, uh, to date, we've analyzed several hundred thousand samples from around the world. And as we begin to look into this data across very diverse populations from around the world, there are some startling patterns that emerge. First, we know disease is not a singular event. We often think of diabetes or heart disease or Alzheimer's disease or cancer or lung disease as I received that disease today, I was diagnosed today. We know these are 10 to 20 year processes. If you look at autopsies from young individuals who've died in war, you can see the markings of heart disease at 18, 19, 20 years old. And so these are processes that start very, very early on and take quite a while before they become clinically apparent which means we should be able to diagnose these decades in advance of their clinical presentation. And when we start looking in these biological samples from around the world, particularly those in which we have decades of clinical follow-up data, what we find is that there's very clear patterns among these molecules in blood that indicate who is going to develop diabetes in 10 years, who is going to develop heart disease, who is going to develop Alzheimer's disease or cancer or lung disease. These are highly robust and reproducible for individuals that live in very different places in the world. People that live in Europe versus live in rural Southern America, et cetera, et cetera, uh, independent of diet and lifestyle. So there's a tremendous amount we can learn uh, from these types of markers. We also learn quite a bit about the way in which people live. There's markers in blood that tell us what countries you live in, what your diet is, how you live your life, how much you exercise, all of those things are actually fed uh, into this information stream that comes from these markers that are floating around in your human blood the only thing we've done is we've actually measured these for the first time in large enough people so we can actually robustly make those discoveries
0: are, are you doing are you doing that so you said you, you've done hundreds of samples now from all over the world I mean what are, what are some hundreds of thousands what's come what's come out of that what, what are some things you've caught that would have killed this person in their 30s or 40s? Yeah. Yeah. So it's Mr. Diseases that have, have come across the the plate for you. Yeah.
2: So there's uh we've worked across three, four dozen different disease areas to give you an idea, Trenton. And in virtually every single disease, we can find early markers that appear, again, years in advance of, of actual diagnosis of disease. Uh, we can find markers that tell us what type of drug people are going to respond to. Uh, we can find markers in blood that read out particular genotypes or people that have specific genetic mutations, whether they be common genetic polymorphisms or rare genetic diseases. Again, none of this is magic. It's just a matter of we can finally measure more things in more people. So we actually have power for detection. Anyone who says they've got a magical device that can do something magical, you know, I feel free to call BS. There is simply nothing magical here. We're just amplifying our potential for discovery just because we can measure more things. And now, the way we operate, uh, Trent and Thomas, is um, we we eventually, and I, I skipped over this part here, but as we were developing these technologies on the academic side, a number of organizations were coming to us. Uh, big pharma companies were coming to us and saying, help us develop this drug or help us understand who's going to respond to this therapy. Uh, large foundations, international foundations, who do lots of clinical trials to help individuals around the world were coming to us and say, help us understand markers and mothers that tell us if their babies are going to be healthy. Government organizations like NIH were coming to us. And it was clear that servicing these folks from the academic side was just not feasible, particularly in a public school system like the University of California It was just not made for these kind of very facile interactions. And so we ultimately spun out a company called Sapient that I now have the pleasure of leading today several years ago. Uh, and, And Sapient's mission is to democratize access to these data and these data assets, meaning these mass spectrometry systems. And so we act as a service organization now uh, for the biopharma community and and for various uh,
1: foundations and, and non profits. So as, as you look through all this data, it yeah. would it would seem like you can zero in on well this this is the disease that's maybe easiest to to remedy. Um, uh, have you have you got some low hanging fruit out there that you've put? Um, You've kind of penciled in that this is one we're going to go after.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of these uh, low-hanging, juicy fruits, as you can imagine, Thomas, that are just ripe for the picking. And so um, there's a number of these that uh, we've made some uh, fairly robust discoveries in, have been able to validate in in many independent data sets. And now we're actually developing the clinical assays around this. And so I have to be careful about how much I disclose simply because this is not (laughs) public information and we're still a private organization. Uh, So I'd like to not receive letters uh, from folks, Uh, but um, we will have a number of these that will be uh, sort of commercially available in the very, very near future uh, around rare diseases and common infectious diseases for which we've developed diagnostic markers, as well as a whole slew of markers that we've worked together with pharma organizations that they'll be commercializing as part of their drug development processes.
0: What's the commercialization look like? What does it look like when you take a technology like this, especially one that's so database, and try to take it to market? Walk us through that process.
2: Yeah, so it's a complicated process, and there's many economic models under which you can sort of uh, operate. There's there's hardware models where you sell hardware as a reagents or kits. The, the way we've chosen to operate, at least at our current time, Trent, is as a service organization. So typically, these biopharma organizations are coming to us with their biological samples and a key question. I need to understand who responds to my drug. I need to have an early diagnostic marker. I need to identify the next best target for liver disease or for cancer. Here are some biological samples and animal models and cellular systems, as well as from our last clinical trial. Analyze these and help us understand what's the best single marker that can identify the population we need. And so that's essentially the process we go through. We act as a a contract research organization where we're generating data using our mass spectrometry systems. We have a toll data analysis team that will analyze that data, as well as do mining around our database for biological validation, and then we return those findings back to the client or sponsor uh, for commercialization on their end.
0: Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance.
1: So from an employee standpoint, how big is Sapient right now? And and then uh, what do you anticipate it's going to be in five years?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question, uh, Thomas. It's a a question I ask myself all the time, but right now we have about 60 individuals here. The vast majority are advanced degrees, PhDs, MDs, et cetera. Uh, And it really is uh, quite a mix of individuals, everything from analytical chemists and bioengineers uh, through mathematicians, software engineers, physicians, uh, data scientists, um, and then as you can imagine, all back office sales and accounting and legal, et cetera, et cetera, administrative folks. And so um it's a it's a it's a very specialized group of individuals um, who are incredibly talented and dedicated to uh, seeing the impact of, of these technologies and data through. Now, you asked a really important question, Grant, where we see this going and and how we're going to grow. and Um, given the speed at which our mass spectrometers can operate, we've automated these processes, and so it's completely robotically controlled. Everything from our freezers are robotic to our sample processing. No human ever touches a tube or writes down a number. Everything is completely roboticized, including our instruments, and they're all controlled remotely by iPads. So Uh, I
1: should should be asking you how many robots do you employ. That's right.
2: Yeah, so we we have pointed that to give you an idea, our robots can... Process and handle somewhere in the order of 50,000, 60,000 samples
1: per day. Okay. And how many of these robots have a PhD?
2: Yeah. So, so the robots, <laughs> uh, uh, unfortunately, do not require education. There's a number of PhDs that are programming the robots. <laughs> uh, and there's a number of folks, engineers on, on staff here and software engineers who are responsible for uh, building and, and sort of optimizing these robots. And, and that works quite well. Uh, the beauty of robots, as you're well aware, is once you do it once and you get it set, it, kind of continues to function until red. Uh and and same with these mass spectrometers. They're incredibly robust and they can operate 24-7 and uh we can generate massive amounts of data in our in our single laboratory site here.
0: So I I wanted to go back to something you said earlier that none of these things is magic. And uh I I hope you'll forgive me for making this connection, but uh listen I know where this is going. I know where this is going. Just just went to jail and uh and giving me that basic pitch, it's yeah. it is kind of redolent of Theranos and what what she was promising. And so I, it kind of sounds like the tech is closer to fruition than I thought. But she apparently was defrauding everybody, and it's but it sounds like you could have done the thing she was claiming to do. So like, well, like what what's going on there? Can, can yeah, you, can so a couple me? things. Just to be clear. Um,
2: uh, I am, uh, I am never going to go to jail, so uh, let's be clear, I'm waiting <laughs> for jail, and, and I don't look good in a, in a, in a turtleneck and, and frankly, my voice is not deep enough. And so uh, there's, there's many differentiators. Um, now there's quite a bit of difference between, uh, what, uh, Elizabeth Holmes was doing with Theranos and, and the way we operate, and again, uh, happy to dive into the chemistry of this. Now, the types of molecules we're assaying are what are called small molecules. Uh, and these are a type of chemistry that we are that are extremely diverse through your blood. Again, tens of thousands of these floating around, everything from glucose and cholesterol to creatinine uh, and thousands of other molecules that span the, the chemical classes. And, and that's the class of molecules we can measure very well with these instruments. Um, some of the claims from Theranos, and again, I never worked with Theranos. So this is just as a lay individual looking from the outside. Uh, some of the claims around their devices were measuring very different things, ions, drug products, and small molecules, and proteins, which chemically makes absolutely no sense. Uh, the the means for measuring each of these different classes is is completely different. So it, it never really made sense to me how the technology was working. Now, what I'll say, and, and this may be very controversial, but the idea behind Theranos is, is not a bad one. Uh, being able to bring uh, laboratory testing to individuals and to the community, um, making it so you democratize access to your own healthcare information. Uh, and that's a sort of a, a vision I, I certainly can believe in. Now, the, the challenge, obviously, is the execution was highly uh, encased in fraud, uh, which is where <laughs> they obviously went bad. Their uh, thing didn't work, which is a yeah. problem. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's, that's quite a bit. And not only did it not work, they were making claims for for clinical care that is just not sort of uh, ethical, feasible, or, or logical. And so, um, there there was a number of execution issues there. But the the vision is not a bad one. Now here, this is again a little bit different in that we're measuring a particular class of molecules: these small molecule metabolites lipids and lipids in blood. Uh, and and again, you know, this is one of the reasons we believe in, in complete data transparency, and so uh, we have it as our modus operandi that anyone we work with gets all the raw information, can come anytime and see the instruments and see the data being generated. and And, and I don't believe in magic. I've never, even as a child, never believed in magic. There's always an explanation, and and so uh, we we believe in providing
0: that full transparent uh, explanation. Well, fantastic. Thank you for that. So I think we'll clip that and say a prominent biotech CEO endorses Elizabeth Holmes' vision.
2: That's right. That's <laughs> exactly right. I'm going to get an angry email from our investor So no, I appreciate that, Trent.
0: Yeah. Well, so can, can we talk a little bit about personalized medicine and where you see the tech going in the future? So this has long been a dream making biologics or compounds that work specifically for you and people draw on genomics for that they draw on artificial intelligence there's been a lot of talk about quantum computing facilitating that because of its ability to you know search the space of possible molecules and all of this sort of thing so uh, what thought had you given to your technology interfacing with other categories of emerging technologies do you think there's any there there is it worth looking into or not
2: yeah it's a great question And, and here we have to take a very honest look at the last 20 years and ask ourselves what's worked what hasn't worked and why And there's two things you need in order to be able to do this well. You need computing power, whether that be quantum computing or or even standard cloud-based computing, and you need data. And if you don't have those two components, one of the two is not sufficient or necessary. You need both of them for this to really operate. Now, uh, uh, as you're well aware, computing power has been a limitation, and and up until more recently in the last five, six years, I would say, and, and that issue has largely been solved. And this has really now become a data input issue. And So let's talk about this for a moment, and and, and at least I can give you my personal beliefs on, on personalized medicine, and excuse the pun there, but personalized medicine really is not about understanding how Trent and Thomas and me are different as individuals as humans. It's about understanding how our diseases are different from one another. So all of us have the same disease, whether it be diabetes or heart disease or Alzheimer's, pick whatever disease you want. The differences between us as people is minuscule relative to the differences between our disease states. Now, the reason for that, and you'll understand where I'm going with this in a second, Trent, the the diagnosis of disease hasn't changed in about 2,000 years. What we use to diagnose disease is end pathology, that abnormal state when it says, I have metabolic insufficiency or I have hardening of my coronary arteries. And that's how we're defining it. We're defining disease by that end pathology. Now, the challenge is there's many paths by which an individual can go from a normal healthy state to a disease state. At least half a dozen for the instance of heart disease or for diabetes, maybe more than even half a dozen. Now, the challenge is all of those individuals are being lumped together as a diabetic or as a patient with heart disease, which means they're all being treated with the same drug. Now, a drug doesn't typically treat the end pathology by by a mechanism by which someone goes from a normal to an abnormal state. So if there's six or seven paths that allow us to go from from a normal state to an abnormal state, a drug targets one of those paths. Each of us have different paths. Understanding how you and I are different has very little bearing, but rather understanding how our disease states are different
0: is absolutely critical. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. How do you have a sense for how prevalent that is in medicine? Because I, I I'd see this sometimes where people claim like AIDS is not one thing. It's a half dozen diseases. And we're, we're calling it one thing because we don't know what the hell it is. Fibromyalgia. I remember years ago, I, <laughs> I kind know, of yeah. nerve pain and problems. And it was like, well, maybe it's fibro. And they're like, well, that's not a diagnosis. That's just like a Latin word they put on it when they have no idea why you're in pain. How prevalent do you think that is? I mean, maybe there's. Two orders of magnitude more diseases than we currently have labels for i would say for virtually every single disease with the exception
2: of perhaps infectious disease so aids hiv is a bad example because we know there has to be a virus that you have to have that results in this so you could argue there's one path now our body's response may be different from among different individuals but let's take infectious disease off the table for a second for every other common disease i would argue that there's multiple forms of the disease That have been amalgamated into one definition that all result in the same end pathology, whether that end pathology is heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, liver disease, lung disease, GI illness, renal disease, et cetera, whatever the case may be. Now, we know this to be the case clinically. You can have 100 people with heart disease or lung disease or brain disease, whatever the disease is in your clinic, and you know some individuals are going to have very different clinical responses and progressions relative to other individuals. So to argue they all have the identical disease state makes absolutely no sense. It's just the way we can simplify a very complex problem and make sense of it in a way to categorize and understand disease. But to not understand that there's multiple forms of a disease is really where we get led astray. Now, to give you even a, a greater example of this, where you see sort of the transformation in the last decade or so is around lung disease. Oh, I was around, I'm sorry, cancer, excuse me. And I can give you a really clear example of this uh, for, for lung cancer in particular. So when I was in medical school, we learned that there's three forms of lung cancer. There, there's small cell lung cancer, there's squamous cell cancer, et cetera. There, there's three of these. And that diagnosis of lung cancer is based, again, upon the pathology. What ha- And this was, you know, several decades ago now. Now, as the time has advanced, as our ability to use sequencing, so genomic sequencing, to understand the tumor... It now no longer is whether or not you've got non-small cell or large cell or, or, or squamous cell carcinoma of the lung. Now it's you have EGFR positive mutations. You have a MIC mutation. You have this mutation, that mutation. And there's already 30 forms of lung cancer. So we've gone from three forms of lung cancer based upon pathology to now 30 or more different types of lung cancer that are based upon the actual mutations that represent the pathway by which an individual went from a normal state of no cancer to a state of lung cancer. Now, the reason genomics has been able to do this specifically in the cancer world is because genomics represents the actual pathway by which an individual develops these mutations. You can read that out in genetic sequencing. The challenge is for every disease outside of cancer, this is not in fact the case. So genomic mutations are not present in the same way in heart disease or in brain disease or in liver disease for the most part. And, and because of that, sequencing has had very little impact in understanding those disease processes and allowing us to subset individuals. And it's in for those diseases where I suspect these small molecules are going to have profound influence in being able to substratify people, understand those paths between normal and the abnormal state, and again, using this information now to identify who responds to a drug versus not.
0: That's that's tremendously exciting. It, it would be hard to overstate the potential of that at, at the limit. It would be as if you're, you go from, you know, I have leg pain to being able to diagnose fractures and growths and delayed onset muscle soreness and understanding the etiology of all those conditions and the different w- patterns of manifestation that they can have. It, it, it would be a huge deal. Uh, earlier, you said that your commercialization model was largely around data consulting, at least that's the, the tag I put on it in my head as you were describing it what work is being done to actually build personalized medications for these things cuz that's the whole other chasm that you have to cross like a- after you've you- you've understood the different avatars these di- diseases can have the different ways they can show up how how that changes from person to person you still have to actually design the the drugs that treat them in a unique way and that's an entirely different problem so what thinking are you doing in that direction
1: yeah yeah to, 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 to tie into that question um, the pharmaceutical industry has got us thinking in terms of we have to cure everything with a pill. If we don't have a pill for it, we can't possibly cure that. And um, and so when it comes to personalized medicine, the idea of using 3D printers to print these pills that have so much of this ingredient, so much of that ingredient, and then being able to get to the real complicated um, uh, solutions that we're going to need in the future, it's, it starts to make sense, but then I don't know, it never made sense to me how the pharmaceutical companies learn how to play play well together. Uh, wow. So it's so a series of really important
2: questions. Sir. I'll take these one by one. Um, so I, I don't think it needs to be as complicated as a 3D printed pill that has so much of drug A, so much of drug B, so much of drug C. We may get to that point, but that's not the immediate future. That's not the next five or 10 years. In 20 to 30 years from now, I'm not bright enough to sort of predict what the world will look like then. But let's even take it from a simpler point. Pharma is really good at making drugs. And these are really specific drugs that can target a particular gene or a protein. And they do this really, really, really well. The challenge, again, is figuring out who actually to give that singular drug to. And so I don't think it needs to be so complicated as saying that we need to come up with these very complex poly pills that have multiple drugs in it. But rather, if I have a drug that I know works, but I know it only works in 20 or 30 or 40% of individuals, let me just identify those 30 or 40 or 50% of individuals in which it works and give the drug specifically to those individuals. And the fraction of individuals in which drug A doesn't work, maybe there's a drug B or a drug C that does work in those individuals. And being able to identify those folks very early on is really critical. This is something pharma is very much dedicated towards. We know drugs are getting more and more expensive, uh, and, and no matter who you speak to, I think everyone universally agrees that the system has to get better, otherwise it's going to fall upon itself. It's just getting too expensive and too complicated, and it, it just it's not going to support itself over one. And so pharma, you can imagine, is really interested in getting better at identifying who's going to actually respond to their drug. If, if they can understand that, clinical trials get faster. They get smaller. They get much, much cheaper. The effect sizes, the benefits are far greater. You can imagine in a clinical trial, if only half the people are responding to a particular therapeutic, you're diluting out your effects by an order, by two. If I only was able to isolate out the people who benefit, now my effects are far, far greater. People are willing to pay for that drug if the effect sizes are that much greater. So this is an idea that I think everyone from the provider, meaning the physician, to the payer system, meaning the insurance company, the patient, as well as the pharma company, all have mutual incentive to solve this underlying problem. If we don't solve it, medicine inevitably is gonna
0: fall upon itself. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers, able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futurati-podcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Yeah, could, could not agree more. It's I, I've heard the US healthcare system described as the worst it could possibly be and still function. Uh, like, like if you read about it in a, in a horror book, you, you would, you would think that was overdone or overrides. And then there's no way it could have worked itself into that state and, and still not have collapsed everywhere. Uh, I, I think, uh, to close up here, if a person wanted to send you a sample, yeah, what's that, what, what's that look like? What's the cost on it? I mean, are you, are you even accepting this sort of thing? Like how, how does this part work? Yeah. So right it, now- um, and, and we're still
2: relatively young in our evolution trend to we, it. We've been around here for just several years. And so the way we operate is as a service organization, not only a data organization, but a service organization, a full end to end solution for the biopharma industry and, and foundations that want to do discovery work. Uh, I, I'm hoping in, in the near future, and, and uh, it's hard to say exactly when that will be, we'll be able to do exactly what you said, whereby we'll have a sort of service offerings uh, directly for consumers whereby we can take biological samples from them, blood or urine, and be able to tell them how they can best optimize their life. Now, this gets a little bit complicated when you're talking about drug implementation. uh, And there's obviously um, a a number of uh, sort of considerations when you're making claims around what may be the best drug and how you do that, legal claims from the FDA that are correct. And we we should have a very high standard. But let's even take it back one uh, sort of level, even understanding lifestyle is absolutely critical and and we went through this when my wife was pregnant with twins and we, we asked our ob gyn who was really quite good it was this famous you know harvard trained ob guy said hey what's the best diet for my wife what should she be eating and and it's one of those things when you start pushing them as to like wait how, how'd you come up with that we can oftentimes tell you what's not healthy <laughs> eating uh, eat, you know a load of lard or you know a pound and a half of french fries every day i can tell you it's unhealthy <laughs> But the opposite side of the coin as to what's healthy and how that's unique for me versus you, Trent, versus you, Thomas, we probably have very different diets that would be optimized for each of who we are. Uh, and, and there's virtually no information out there as to what constitutes an, an optimal diet for anyone, what constitutes an optimal lifestyle, how do I optimize for muscle growth versus long, li- long, living as long as I possibly could versus prevention of diseases. And, and so even simple lifestyle modification is an area where we can have tremendous impact, uh, let alone understanding uh, personalized therapies with therapeutics on an individual by individual basis.
0: Well, that, that is fantastic. I, I wish you the best of luck because I think that if you guys are successful, it will be a step change in in the way medicine functions. And as I said earlier, to quote myself from earlier, it would be hard to overstate the potential uh, this technology, if it, if it works out correctly, so where where should we send people? How, how do we uh, where, turn them on to this? Where should we send our samples? That's right,
2: uh, that's right. Uh, uh, mailing man, my man, blood. Believe me, I've, I'm I'm itching to test my own blood. I'm not this is just you. a blood soaked envelope. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we're, we're close. We're close. We need a little bit of time here. So um, we're located at www.sapient, sapient s a p i e n t dot bio, B-I-O, and sapient, as you know, means to know. Uh, and and the whole idea is by making these measurements, we can know more about who you are, your health, uh, what your risk of disease over time is. And uh, we'll have to do this again, perhaps next year. And uh, I- I'm hoping we can have uh, some more information for you about how we may have uh, direct-to-consumer testing at that time. And uh, yeah.
0: Oh, fantastic. Yeah, uh, love- thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the information.
1: Yeah, My love- pleasure. You. Have a great day. Yeah, I'd love to hear more progress. That'd
2: be great. Fantastic. Well, I I'm, I'm really looking forward to giving it to you, Thomas. Say, uh, yeah, give me a year and then we'll uh, we'll have this conversation again and uh yeah.
1: Okay. We look forward to it.
2: <laughs> I'll take you up on that. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate your time today and thank
0: you for the great questions. Have a good afternoon. Thank you. Absolutely, you as well.